Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow Exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times Somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago Just to believe it All right, Rooster Road Trip Recap Edition. Folks, um, hopefully you have enjoyed the journey of four episodes uh, tracking the well, <laughs> 2023, the 14th edition, Hunting the Heartland Rooster Road Trip from Minnesota to Iowa to Nebraska. Um, today we... As we sit back at HQ headquarters, Rooster Road Trip seems something of a distant memory <laughs> in, in my mind, but uh, hopefully it's fresh in your mind after watching the, the videos, the, um, listening to the podcast, and enjoying the photo gallery. Today, we're going to recap, and that means um, share some of our highlights, as well as answer uh, and this is the featured portion of today's episode. We're going to answer some of the crowdsourced questions that came in through the Rooster Road Trip webpage via our social followers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yes, I'm still going to say Twitter. Screw X. We're running <laughs> with Twitter. There's my stand <laughs> for the day. Um, <clears throat> joining me on this episode... Uh, Andrew Vavra, Vice President of Marketing and the uh, Rooster Road Trip uh, Chief Brain Wizard. There's a K-Fan term for you. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, Logan Hinners, Design Director, and uh, been on many, many road trips. What's the number for you now? I think this was year 10. Year 10. I think so. Yeah. Decade. In making his uh, podcasting debut, he's very nervous, all the way from Hawaii. Uh, Jordan Darley joins us as well. We'll we'll run through some intros here in a moment. Uh, I want to start by thanking our Rooster Road Trip sponsors who generate a ton of revenue for our organization's wildlife habitat mission. Um, all riding shotgun on Rooster Road Trip. Those partners include Browning, Federal Ammunition, Rufflin Kennels, Apple Autos, Sound Gear, Garmin, Yeti, Irish Setter, and Leupold. Um, nine sponsors. That's a lot of that's a lot of partners to ride shotgun, but we appreciate each and every one of them. Uh, also, remind you on RoosterRoadTrip.org, you can check out the Browning Blackout Knife in either Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever logo. That's the membership incentive for joining through Rooster Road Trip. Or go big, go. Go Box, the Yeti Go Box for life members of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Uh, King Crab Orange, I think, is the technical color, correct? It, it's our favorite color. It, it's Hunter's Orange. Let's, let's not be too cute. There we it. go. There we go. Hunter's Orange, Yeti Go Box for life members if you join and become a life member through Rooster Road Trip. And for everybody that signs up um, during Rooster Road Trip through... December 20th, uh, you have a chance to win a 12-gauge Browning Satori 725 feather. Um, 
folks you've you've met and you know Andrew and Logan because they've uh, they've been on a number of podcasts. So we're gonna put the spotlight on on Jordan making his <laughs> uh, his podcasting debut. <laughs> uh, and folks only got to see you here recently on video. Uh, your video production specialist. You were the first person talking about highlights in the recent um, social clip yep. we ran. Um, but for folks that didn't catch that and don't know anything about Jordan Darley, give us your life story in uh, three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> life story in three minutes. Uh, here we Thereabouts. Go. <laughs> no, take your time because you you have a very fun backstory, and I want I want folks to uh, kind of hear it first person. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I grew up born and raised in Hawaii and then um, went off to college at the University of North Dakota where I got my degree. So I have to stop you right there, right? You started, you grew up in Hawaii and you went to college in North Dakota. How did you make that decision, Jordan? <laughs> um, so <laughs> we're going we're gonna to slow this baby down and get inside your head. Hawaii to North Dakota. Yeah, that was a big change up. I uh, actually, when I was applying for colleges, I just applied to a bunch. Um, and University of North Dakota was the first college to accept me. And the very next day, I accepted their <laughs> acceptance. And I was like, I'm going. And what, were, what did you intend to go to school for when you sent out your applications? Um, wildlife biology was, okay. was the major that I was shooting for. Hmm. Yep. You know, normally it happens in reverse, right? Like you grow up in North Dakota and you're like, I'm going to be a marine biologist. I want to go <laughs> live in Hawaii. And you, you went the other direction. So do you remember some of the other schools? Like were you always targeting cold winter pheasant range? No, what I was targeting <laughs> was get out of Hawaii. And that was my target. What? Yeah. Why? You know, you grow up uh, on an island with, uh, you know, you, you can only drive two hours in any direction, maybe even less. Hmm. And you just start to feel claustrophobic. And I was like, you know, there's this whole world I need to see. So why not start with college in North Dakota? Sweet. <laughs> so did you grow up fishing, hunting, the outdoors? What was what was the outdoors like in Hawaii? <laughs> yeah, fishing, fishing was my game. Uh, I grew up in love with fishing, and that's all I would do. Beg my mom for all these fishing technique books and fishing poles and reels. Every, you know, finding baits and stinking up my mom's house with baits. <laughs> um, and then later, as I grew older, um, my cousins were into hunting and they they brought me on to hunting and we'd hunt pigs and stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah. And that's that's pretty much what my hunting turned into. Um, oh, spearfishing, if, if you consider spearfishing hunting. Um, that was another big one of mine. Hmm. Yeah. And... It, Based on, you know, your experience hunting or following us on Rooster Road Trip, how close does spearfishing mimic hunting? Um, it's it's pretty close. Um, kind of just knowing your who your what your prey is, you know, mm. and how and just understanding them better just helps you. And from what I see, everybody here understands pheasants mm. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I you know, I'd say I'd say the same for myself about fish. You mm. know? Yeah. yeah. That's cool. It, so one of the great components of Rooster Road Trip for me personally, I don't know if this is true for you, but it is for me personally, that 
you got you were my shotgun rider the entire time. So I, you and I had a lot of laughs. I subjected you to how many times did you have to listen to my music? Like, well, for instance, Blink One Eighty Two. How many times did you listen think, to the new album? I think we listened to that album. I'd put it on a nine times, maybe. I think it was more than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of Blink-182. Yeah. Yeah. And Trampled by Turtles. Trampled and by Turtles. Tur- oh, man. But, you know, solid solid albums, though. You know, not bad. <laughs> I did enjoy them. <laughs> He's just brown-nosing right now. <laughs> uh, I had a, a lot of fun. The, you know, just some of the things that I think about, you know, um, you talked about poke bowls. Like you can buy poke bowls in Hawaii at the Seven Eleven, and you're like, they're actually pretty good. Yeah, I don't know about poke bowls, but sushi, sushi. It's, yeah, in Seven Eleven. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, you can buy sushi at a gas station, and it's pretty good. And it's pretty good. Yep. Because I'm steering clear of the sushi at Quick Trip. <laughs> like personally, what about you, Andrew? I'm not going there, but I mean, I have been on a trip with you to the UP and they were serving raw ground beef. I believe yes. it was uh, yeah. raw dog and or tiger meat. Yeah, um, that's what so, they call it. <laughs> so yeah, you know, everybody's got their own little shtick. Colloquialisms. Like, raw, <laughs> you know, proteins that nobody should be eating from a gas station. <laughs> uh, all right. So Hawaii to North Dakota loves fishing studying wildlife biology um you 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 had um susan feligi yep susan uh, who's feligi. on our national board of directors was one of your professors too. yep yep and it so how long did um what did you graduate with i graduated with um a fisheries and wildlife biology degree okay yep so i introduced you as the video production specialist so take <laughs> us through how you got from b to c yeah. Um, so originally my dream was to become a wildlife biologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was going through the seasons, um, you know, you get to work with all these partner organizations and you get to hear their stories and, and what kind of drives them to do what they do. And one day I'm working <clears throat> with um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service out in Maine on Moosehorn National Wildlife Refuge. And we're working with the Passamokote tribe. And as I'm talking with them, they're telling stories um, of their ancestors about this fish called the alewife and how how much impact they like this fish had on their their tribe and stuff like that, and even the watershed as a whole. Mm. And um, and we're working to restore this fish, and they're they're saying how how this dam that got knocked down um, was doing so well, like f- just the whole watershed in general. <laughs> made a quick recovery within like two years and it went down from from like some odd like hundreds of thousands of fish to like millions in two years hmm. yeah and um eventually i was just like these are the stories that we need to tell and these are the stories that are going to speak to people's hearts and i was like how do we tell these stories i was like video bought a camera um took a couple videos took a couple pictures turned out way better than i ever thought they could ever turn out to be and kind of just saw the vision of becoming a videographer and Mm. photographer and kind of dove headfirst into that whole deal and taught myself everything. And it was a struggle of three years, but 
ended up here at Pheasants Forever. So I know you had some stops along the way, right? You were um, you're doing some, f- was it fisheries work in northern Minnesota too? So that was in college, yep. yep. I was volunteering to do some like walleye stocking um, in, in Minnesota. Okay. Um, also, I've, I've worked across the country doing wildlife biology stuff um, out in Hawaii, working with invertebrates, um, Wyoming, sage grouse, Maine, on a national wildlife refuge mm-hmm. and working or trapping deer out in Maine. Um, yeah. in Colorado working with trout. And, and that's kind of where, so the idea was born in Maine, Yep. but in Colorado is kind of when it started to get some legs for you, right? In terms of transitioning from a biologist to a videographer. Kind of. Yeah. So, um, I was, I was really working hard on the, on getting that, doing that freelance stuff. And there was, there was some struggle in there. So, um, I figured, you know, to keep myself present and, and kind of in the loop of conservation, um, I was like, you know, what if I do a season with Colorado Parks and Wildlife and kind of, and I was living there at the time and I thought it was a good resource for me to learn the organizations, the, the pro the, the conservation projects, um, locally to me in that, Mm -hmm. in that sense. And yeah. And then what led you to just go all in on video and start <laughs> sending out resumes? I mean, why, why not go all in mm-hmm. to what you're passionate about? Mm-hmm. Why not? Yeah. And you, you found some resistance along the way around the biology degree, didn't you? Yep. Yep. Um, I, I quickly realized that a lot of the people or organizations I wanted to work with, um, they just didn't have the budget for any marketing um, and they, all their money went straight back into their programs. Hmm. And so that's, that's where I struggled a lot. Um, I would have to find funding for myself to, to help these organizations. Hmm. Yeah. And then lo and behold, you throw your resume in and it catches Aaron Blackschmidt's <laughs> eye and Andrew Vavra's eye. Yeah. And, uh, the biology de- degree became an asset for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So as you think back to Rooster Road Trip and doing video production, um, you know, you, <laughs> you started with us and were, you were in the office for what, one day before you started doing video projects? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, give us your sense of like how it matched up to expectations going on the trips. You know, I think road trip was your third trip and I don't think you had more than a day home from the time you started. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I got hired on and Andrew and Aaron are telling me, don't worry, we're not going to throw you in the fire. We're going <laughs> to, we're going to ease you in. It doesn't sound like, Andrew. yeah. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's nice. They're going to, they're going to let me get settled in a little bit. Yeah. As I'm driving to Minnesota, <laughs> I think I'm in Iowa at this point. I get a call from Aaron saying, he's like, Oh, something came up. I need you to do this thing for me. And it's a video shoot. And that kind of took up the entire week of me kind of getting settled into the organization. So that whole settling Mm -hmm. period was just thrown out the door (laughs) and I was thrown into the fire and the fire has just been roaring. (laughs) Dude, I I tried, man. Like I, 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 I really tried. Like I was trying to be so protective of you at the beginning in terms of, 
Now he's coming from out of state. He doesn't even know where he's going to live. Mm-hmm. Can we at least let him figure out some life stuff before <laughs> like we, we throw work on him? Like let's, let's make sure that balance is there because what's important to me is making sure people are, are not only productive, but they're happy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I want this experience to be positive and for, for him to be sticky and want to be here. Oh, but, I remember this conversation. Like, yeah, it's just like, <laughs> you, like you and I were like had a back and forth. And there was like, well, when should he even start? And I was trying to like delay it. Like, let's <laughs> let him figure stuff out. And then it's like, well, we have this shoot that we could use a hand with. And well, we have that shoot. And then it's like, well, maybe it would be best if we... Gave him a little live fire drill before the road trip, mm-hmm. you know, not have the road trip be the initial, you know, inaugural get in the truck and, <clears throat> and hold on type experience. So it just kind of snowballed a little bit. Um, but, you know, Jordan showed his grit. He absolutely showed his grit. Um, and you've handled it with a plum. How's that for a good word? A plum. I mean, you have, the, have had the perfect personality to be thrown in to, you know, the heart of – video season which also happens to be the heart of hunting season um i mean it seems like you've had fun along the way oh yeah I've had a blast yeah. yeah having a blast we ain't done yet yeah we ain't done <laughs> yeah we're, we're, we're not out of it yet like, we're, we're negotiating yeah. like trips that are taking place in a couple of weeks still it's just like well it'd be great if i could have two weeks to pull this off yeah. <laughs> i yeah. did catch that little negotiation yeah. too yeah. <laughs> we're working on it we're done. working on it <laughs> Well, you've been, you were a great addition. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, th- I think uh, no doubt people that have watched the videos, having two um, videographers in the field with us allowed us to capture so much more beautiful content and tell a more robust story. And I can't wait to see what you bring to the table next year when you have a little time to (laughs) know where your underwear are. (laughs) Yeah, for real. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll transition to um, kind of the focal point of this Rooster Road Trip Recap Edition, and that's uh, questions from the the crowd. Before we go there, I want to give a shout-out to Onyx Hunt, a proud national partner of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, and a proud sponsor of On The Wing Podcast. If you've been living under a rock and you don't have Onyx and you're a public land bird hunter, what the heck are you doing? Come on, folks. Get Onyx on your phone. Uh, You can use the code PFQF for 20% off your Onyx Hunt subscription. And for every time that code is used, Onyx makes another donation back to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Wildlife Habitat Conservation Mission. Onyx is just phenomenal uh, sponsor and supporter of our organization. Also draw your attention to the, uh, the what are we calling it, the walk-arounds, the, the hunting rig walk-arounds. Onyx is sponsoring those. Jordan is uh, filming those. Um, ben Bredigan was walk around number one, I think, right? Yep. Um, A lot of aspirational vehicles there. <laughs> just holy throw cow, I didn't like, realize Rich's was so cool. I mean, yeah, well, so it, people can go to our, our Instagram uh, channel right now and check out Rich Wissink's 
uh, featured episode, and uh, I, I've always been eyeing up that one specifically because because of his like we'll call it liquid asset management. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it, he's got a dedicated battery hooked up, you know, D cell to a, a generator which like shoves water out of hose out the back, and it's just like, oh boy, this is. This it's is, phenomenal. This is next level red green type stuff. So like <laughs> good for you, man. It's a lot better than our water spigot little like container. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the camping yeah. jug. Yeah. I have a Kerosene square blue jug. box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think there've been there've been four of them so far and four more coming. They're yeah. really cool. My truck is not going to be featured on there. <laughs> I can aspire, though. You have the little Tahoe that could. You know, yeah. it, it made it through the whole road trip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I put $1,400 of repairs in since then. <laughs> uh, all right. Questions from the crowd. Um, so we've got, uh, like I mentioned, we've got Andrew Vavra, Logan Hinners, and Jordan Darley to help answer your questions and Believe it or not, I might chime in here or there as well. Question number one comes from Bobby, good name, in South Carolina. How do you go about scouting for new land before you arrive, and how do you decide where to start on a specific piece of property? And if anybody's watched the videos, and hopefully you have, you know that... Our play caller is Andrew. So, Andrew, that question can be directed at you. Um, that is a loaded question because it's not even one you can really answer very well. But I'll do my best for you, Bobby, in South Carolina. <laughs> um, so when it, when it comes to scouting before you even get there, it's it's a numbers game in terms of quantity. I'm not even worried about quality. Like, you, you can't there's a huge difference when it comes to the, the prairie birds and let's just say the forest birds in terms of your ability to do a quality scout digitally before you even get there. Cause if you're hunting rough grouse, you can at least key in on um, forest disturbances that occur at a certain amount of time prior. Right. right. Cause 20, you 20, 10, cause they show, on, they show the, the year right on the map. So it's really easy to be like, okay, that's the, the cluster that I definitely want to go key mm-hmm. in on. Versus with, with grassland birds, I mean, things can change seasonally, let alone annually. Um, so even the satellite views are, are a little bit difficult. But what you can do is, depending on when those satellite images were taken, you can key in on the rotation. And you can figure out, okay, this was beans this year. Mm-hmm. It'll be corn next year. And they're, they're, and thanks to some apping, app services, they're actually picking up on that. And those are layers that you can actually turn on and off in certain areas that right now. Um, so that's actually pretty helpful, but that doesn't do you a lot of good in terms of the grass itself. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for us on this road trip specifically, in terms of pre-scouting, it was paying attention to the drought maps um, and utilizing all the tools we had in our back pocket, which are the same tools other people have too. And that's calling local biologists. Mm-hmm. Here's a big secret, folks. You can go out of pheasantsforever.quillforever.org and click the find a biologist tab and start keying in on the areas you're curious about. And I, they're going to hate me for this, but I implore you, harass them. Like, no, <laughs> well, like, harass might be the wrong like, word. In, in a positive way, in, 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 a, in, a, in a gentle nudging and asking way, yeah. harass them. Um, <laughs> because they're super knowledgeable. They're local. They know what's going on in the landscape and, and they're going to help you. And they're great people. They're great, fantastic people. They speak the language. They know what you're talking about. I mean, habitat is our mission and hunting is our motivation and we all know it. So it's anything we can do to help our membership and supporter base have a good time out there. 
is beneficial for our mission because it builds affinity to the landscapes we're trying to protect. Yeah. So don't be too bashful. You'd be surprised how many people don't utilize that aspect of our biologists, probably because we don't advertise it too much. Well, but, so one thing is to be respectful of <coughs> not calling the day before you're going to go. Like yes. get, give them some time to get back to you and don't be, you know, just be respectful about it. Yep. And so that, that's a really good point. And that, that relates back to what we did because the road trip that everybody saw this year wasn't the road trip I had in mind. True. Um, because we started planning far enough out and talking to a couple of key biologists in different states, we completely changed our game plan in terms of where in the country we were actually planning mm-hmm. on going. Like the whole Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska thing, that wasn't plan A. That was plan, I'd say, B2. Um, we Maybe wa- C. Yeah, Maybe. I mean, we wanted to get in a different area in the in the Dakotas, and we wanted northern Nebraska, and I was, it just mm-hmm. wasn't going to be wise for us to put ourselves in situations where we could roll up to what would look like a piece of public ground on any map and find a pool table mm-hmm. or find something, you know, that's emergency grazed or hayed. And that's the reality of the situation, and it happens. And I feel like that's becoming more prevalent with every passing year is like we're now playing the drought as much as everything else. Mm-hmm. At least, I mean, that's recency bias for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to scouting before you get there, a call, call ahead and start well in advance in terms of once those drought maps start coming out in the summer, key in on that. And now the next stop is, you know, when do roadside counts come out? Mm-hmm. Key in on that. Like, they're not lying to you. Mm-hmm. Like it's basically a, the, the cliff notes version of, Hey, wink, wink. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should give yourself a better shot and try these areas. Yep. Now, anybody worth their salt would be looking at the same stuff, but that's surprisingly still a small percentage of the actual upland hunters out there. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised how many people just go to the same spot every Tradition year, no matter what and, and don't move with taking the, the variables into account. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you do that, then it's more of just a quantity game. Mm-hmm. Like where can you find the most abundant numbers of publicly accessible properties, whether that's a walk-in program property or WMA or WPA, because some of them aren't going to be good mm-hmm. straight up. Like you're, they're not all going to be winners and you need to be able to pivot and you need to just have that mentality of you're not going to hunt everything you see and nor should you. Mm-hmm. Um, so having the opportunity to just make those decisions of let's, drive around and see what else is out there. That's super important because you can get locked out. Now we got lucky this year because we did the exact opposite to escape people Mm -hmm. and we happened to find birds. But if we didn't find birds there, that's a whole nother scramble that we would have encountered. So that's risk reward right there. Yeah. Well, you can watch episode three in the, the very start of the morning in Nebraska and you can witness kind of the maturation of the thought process Andrew went through every sing, almost every single day. Maybe not on day four because we were locked and loaded on day or episode four, but pretty much every other day we were scrambling around other public land hunters, getting there super early, getting there with a crowd of people, and then having to pivot. In episode three, we pivoted hard. Credit to you, it absolutely paid dividends. Yeah, and luck has a lot to do with that. Sure, I'll, I'll but definitely but you have to that. you. You are more willing to pivot, I think, than I would have been. You know, we were there. Everybody was there. We had a square. I, you know, I'm more reluctant to, like, pull up the anchor 
and say, all right, everybody, we're going 25, 30 miles from here. We have no idea if somebody else is on there, what it even looks like. And you made that call, and it was absolutely the right call. So kudos. Sometimes you just got to go for it. Yeah. <laughs> do what Jordan would do. Just go all in. Just, yeah. just, <laughs> just, just do it. Um, but then real quick in terms of like where to decide like where to start hunting on the property. Mm-hmm. For me, it's it's what's adjoining it in terms of is it cut egg or not or is there wetland mm-hmm. and, and wind. So um, you do pay attention to wind. I definitely just in terms of like how we're at least going to start, you mm-hmm. know, um, if you're if you listen to Tom Carpenter's school of how to shoot a thousand pheasants, he plays it differently in terms of he likes to zigzag his way across mm-hmm. and, he, and just, you know, try and catch it on multiple fronts. And that makes sense from like a solo hunter's aspect or someone who just mm-hmm. always follow the dog. Yeah. Um, but when you have eight to 10 people in a line, yeah. it's challenge. It's a challenge. So it's like, let's line up into the wind and give the dogs the best chance right out of the gate yeah. and, and see what we can get them versus trying to, We'll on our loop back, maybe then we'll be hitting yeah. into it. It's like, no, let's just go for it. There's a major difference between hunting it as a large group of people versus one. I mean, major, major difference in philosophically, isn't there? Yep. 100%. Um, none of it's bad or necessarily good. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, <clears throat> But knowing... You just have to have a different mindset. Sometimes I'm better than, better than others going going into that knowing the mindset. You, you were very – Meredith always enjoys the start of each hunt, it, listening to what jab you're going to get in it on me. <laughs> the most recent one was, uh, where do you want to hunt, Bob? Uh, I'll take the end. He's like, yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Just, just wanted you to say it out loud. <laughs> all right, we're all on the same page. Let's go. <laughs> well, which which is plays to my sensibilities as a solo hunter, but it also functionally running flushers and pointers. You do have to separate them, um, at least somewhat on the on the on the on the line of hunters. There's. There's a balance, and that's why you got put in timeout for the following hunt after that one. <laughs> Bob, you're on this corn edge. Everybody else flushes over here. Yeah, yeah I was kind of out of the game on that one, although I shot a bird that just a flyby. No, you you, you guys got into him. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, from Roy in Wisconsin, and we'll start with Logan to answer this one. Roy asks, what is the one piece of gear you could not live without as a pheasant hunter? it's a good question. Um, for me, and this is going to sound maybe extremely odd coming from a, a flusher lab guy, but it's it's definitely turned into the Garmin Pro 550 um, tracking training collar, um, e-collar. It, that thing has given me so much more confidence in the field um, with a flushing dog, just knowing his whereabouts. And, it, and it's honestly made me a better handler and made us – uh, more successful as a, a tandem in the field. Mm-hmm. I, I can just simply look down and, and know he's within 40 yards of me and not have like, you know, especially when you get into that thicker, heavy cover, cattails, you know, tall grass where and dogs can slip away pretty easy. And the next thing you know, they're birdie and, you know, they're bumping birds 80 yards ahead of you. Yeah. And it, and I've found myself, um, I, yeah, I can just quickly look down and see, Hey, he's, He's working and he's just 30 yards ahead of me. We're good. I don't have to recall at all, mm-hmm. which allows him to stay on, on scent. So, mm-hmm. 
for me, that's what it is this year. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense to me. Just having and just that peace of mind. Peace of mind knowing where your dog is. Yep. Nothing will ruin the entire experience than losing a dog. Yep. That's that's first year I've used it, and it's in my mind it's been a game changer for us. Yeah, right on. Jordan, from a video perspective, is there you know, folks saw that image of you with the kind of the PVC pipe over your head, and all, you know, and I know there's a lot of folks that like to film or photograph their hunts. Anything you draw out their way from from a gear perspective? Um, yeah, uh, I recently got put onto this, but a GoPro. That's mm. big, huge, on. Uh, saving your butt <laughs> so explain that so you have the big camera but the gopro how did it save your butt it's uh it's on a loop and so it's kind of recording um kind of behind the scenes while your your main camera's not recording mm. so it's catching yeah what you what you don't catch in terms of hot mics we're talking hot video so be careful what you're doing in front of jordan <laughs> <laughs> yeah you did catch some candid stuff uh, any any piece of gear for you andrew um, I mean, the one that you can't live without is, is a shotgun that properly fits. Mm. Um, I think that's a huge deal. And I think that's something that, especially for like new hunters, um, counterintuitively, I think people don't take it as seriously as they should. Mm. Cause it's like, oh, this person's new to it. Let's just give them whatever 870 we have in the closet and, and call it good. And then that person ends up missing every other shot if not more often and then people wonder why they're frustrated and don't want to continue on um but from my, my own personal perspective like i'm six four um you know me i i dabbled in that 20 gauge a little bit in the last day just for something different to do and it was like holding a red rider like it, it was it was not gonna work out well so I'm, I'm glad i actually hit a bird with it um but to me it just cemented the fact of like a properly fit shotgun it makes all the difference and actually connecting on the opportunities you have you work all day long to kick up a bird or two mm. so like why have something that is well within your control in terms of something that you should be able to operate very proficiently like why put yourself at a disadvantage and not take the fit of your shotgun seriously yeah. so good advice that's that's number one um in terms of something like a little different that people might not expect i actually forgot it on the road trip this year and in the back of my mind, it like it bothered me. Um, but a small, waterproof like roll top bag, like something that's just barely big enough to hold your wallet and a set of keys. Um, so then you can roll it up and actually clip it into the back of your vest, so that when you're halfway through a 600 acre field, you're not doing like the whole like macarena, like checking all your pockets, like okay, where oh there are my keys. Oh, okay, you know it's. <laughs> I just have like. I don't know, a big fear of losing my keys, wallet, and or phone in the middle of a field. And I've been with you when you've lost a phone. Somehow we found that. So kudos to you. And I heard another horror story from one of our coworkers this fall who locked his keys in his truck in the middle of, like, I think it was the grasslands. Mm. And, like, that was a gong show trying to figure that one out. And so, uh, I don't know, for me, it's just uh, managing your, your equipment and what you need to get mm. home. <laughs> uh well that's good um all right we'll stick with you andrew for uh it was a question from ryan in illinois how did the varying start times to the hunting day positively or negatively 
impact your hunt. So just for clarity for folks that are wondering, Minnesota, where we started, you can start hunting at 9 a.m. The next state we went to was Iowa, and you can start hunting at 8 a.m. And then the next state we went to, Nebraska, you can start, I believe, half hour before sunrise, which is way too early. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't even tell if they're roosters or hens. But go ahead and uh, how would you answer how the uh, different start times affected us? Um, I mean, it can affect the group dynamic in terms of people who are good sleepers or not and how they feel getting up early in the morning. Um, but in terms of like actually finding <clears throat> birds, I feel like it actually really only matters earlier in the season um, in terms of when crops are still up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want as much time as possible to try and catch them still on the roost in the morning versus, you know, by the time you're mid-morning, afternoon, and there's standing corn around, it's like, can guess where most of them are at this point. Yeah. Um, so, but once all the crops are up, I don't think it makes as large of a difference other than, you know, bright and early, they're still going to be on the roost. They're still going to be in the grass. It just removes kind of one more, I wonder where they are type moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, South Dakota needs to get their act together. I'm so tired of a 10 a.m. start. <laughs> I, economics, like I know they're important to rural economies and all that, but give me a break. A 10 a.m. start, by the time you get going, like, yeah. Anyway, it's time for so, lunch. So yeah, it, like, they have uh, they have dialed that back in recent years or well, earlier because well, it used to be like a noon. Start well, for the first week it was it was, yeah. it was noon, and now they've bumped that up to, to ten. To ten, yeah. thank Which is which is better for sure. But it's like for those of us who want to grind out most of a day, it's like you just removed a large portion of, of the day. It's I like, got a hack for you on that. What do you uh, just ride that Nebraska border and then just well, like, cross over at ten or North Dakota south or what? Prairie grouse hunt because you don't have to wait till ten in South Dakota. You can prairie grouse hunt. Um, I think it's at sunrise in in and then you can uh, transition to pheasants if you're in an area where you can. Mm-hmm. No, that that is a very good act. Um, all right, we'll do this one's a kind of a quick hitter. We'll start with Logan. From Scott in Missouri, what is your preferred gauge, shot size, and choke for pheasant hunting? For pheasant hunting, uh, typically if I'm using a 12-gauge over and under, um, chokes, I run improved cylinder, bottom barrel, modified top. So my more open pattern is bottom barrel, which I do shoot first, and there's some reasoning behind that. I wish we had our resident uh, shotgun expert here, Rachel, to explain all that, but the quick theory is your bottom barrels, the, the access line of that is more in line with your receiver. Mm. So less perceived recoil. Mm. Um, you get less barrel jump on that barrel than your top. Um, so that's what I run. And then typically four shot steel. Mm. We need somebody to write in here. Cause I, I, sh- I do the exact opposite of you for, in terms of barrel selection. Oh, you, you run more open on top. So I do improved top modified bottom um so modified being the tighter second shot when they're further out but i guess the way it was explained to me or maybe i just made this up which could be likely um is after your first shot if you miss i mean your barrel naturally rises up and so when you bring it back down you're on the bird quicker hmm. on the bottom barrel hmm. um so we do need rachel because mm-hmm. i can't answer this i i'm closer to what uh, Logan does, I, I my first shot's coming out of the bottom barrel, and it's skeet. Um, 
but I'm using steel as well, so it's going to be a act like improved cylinder, sure. and then improved cylinder next barrel, and that'll be tighter. But again, I'm um, it, over pointers in theory. I'm going to be closer, no matter if it's early season, late season. Um, Somebody write in. Yeah. Let, let us know what you what's think. The right answer? Wait, what's the right answer? Which barrel should you shoot first? We need to know because yeah. clearly we it, don't. It's <laughs> all over the board. I I run across that a lot. Yeah. Yep. Um, do you say shot size? Uh, whatever I can grab generally, <laughs> probably. I mean, I, so I live in, I live in Minnesota and yeah. so it's, it's a lot of WPAs and just a lot of water in general. Um, so I shoot non-tox, yeah. um, cause I just don't like dealing with, do I have lead in my pocket that I forgot about? Um, so probably, I don't know, four for shooting steel, maybe five if it's like bismuth or something yeah. fancy that I was gifted because I can't afford it. Oh, boy. Let me tell you about bismuth. <laughs> <laughs> I like bismuth. <laughs> I do. I mean, Your wallet does I, it. Well, <laughs> do. true. But, man, does that stuff, I mean, you get less cripple. I mean, it hits hard. I, I um, started using that maybe two years ago, the meat eater stuff that federal produced um prairie grouse hunting uh bismuth fives for my 20 gauge holy mackerel you can reach out and touch something with those and it just drops them um so i've been using it i don't think they have the meat eater loads anymore but federal has a um i think it's heavy bismuth and they are i mean that's a really good load we got a lobby for a pheasants forever logo on the bismuth it is it is very good stuff I think I know someone in this room that could probably have that conversation. Yeah, we're, we're going <laughs> to. <laughs> we'll talk. We'll talk. Um, all right. Um, this is uh, another one for Andrew from Levi in Minnesota. Do you believe rooster road trips should motivate people to care about conservation? This, is a, this feels like a planted question. I mean, it's, it's kind of the whole point, isn't it? Yeah. Um, at least that's the way I, I, I view it because – it works both ways, good or bad. Um, so in terms of people watching the road trip and seeing the success that we're having, the opportunities that do exist, I hope it motivates them to get out. I hope that it spurs them that, you know what, this weekend we, we, we should get out there after it too, or we should plan our own multi-state road trip because it is feasible. Like what these knuckleheads can get themselves into. Um, and I hope that that's effective in the fact that it, it increase or it creates more affinity to the landscape, similar to what I was talking about earlier today. It's like, once you're out there putting boots on the ground, you, your heart is with that landscape. It means more to you and you want to do more to make sure that not only is that landscape protected and in the best like possible shape, but there's more of it too. Um, which gets to like the bad parts that, that people might say, and I say bad parts kind of in, in air quotes there, but we ran into access issues almost everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not a cakewalk. It's not just rolling up that uh, pristine property time after time. It's just loaded with birds. It's like, no, you got to grind for it and you're going to get bumped out by other hunters. And that should make you realize, you know what? We, we need more access. We need more opportunity, whether that's through VPA, hip private, uh, ground, like access programs or more properties via our build wildlife area or more wildlife management areas. You know, you name the acronym, you know, federal or state. We need more permanently protected ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that should spur you a little bit to like support pheasants forever, to support quail forever. Uh, choose your NGO of, of choice. I do not care. I mean, it's as long as you're doing your part to create more opportunities and to give back to the landscapes of which you love, that's what matters to me. And so 
hopefully it's either you see it as a positive, let's keep it going. I want to do more of this or the negative we need, we can and need to do better. I don't, I don't really care what lens you're looking through. I just hope that it, it motivates you to do more than just, just watch, like be an active participant in conservation. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, you, it doesn't take much traveling to see the pressure for public lands, hunting access. And this year I've had very respectful, but probably more people reach out to me personally focused on rooster road trip being in Iowa and, you know, people a little frustrated, like you shouldn't be drawing more attention to non-resident hunting in Iowa because we got, you know, bird numbers are up this year. And we have more people than we can handle on our public lands. You guys, it, it's funny because, you know, the year prior, it's like, when do you guys come back to Iowa? We really love when you promote. And now that the bird numbers are up and, you know, the hunting numbers are up, there's been a lot of people pushing back to me personally. It's like, lay off Iowa, which speaks to your point is like, I think in, in the, um, was it maybe the second episode we talked about Iowa is ranked 47th, something like that in the 40th of the amount of public access in the country. It's like that there's, there's a rub there and it exists because there's not a lot of public access. And that is part of our mission in this organization, whether it's permanent through land acquisitions, like you mentioned, or through our uh, advocacy efforts through to create walk-in programs or enhance walk-in programs. Like you mentioned, Andrew, IHAP, Iowa's Habitat and Access Program, is one of the signature walk-in programs in the country. Beautiful habitat. It's one of my favorites. Just needs more. Just needs more acres. And, and I... It's unfortunate that people are ribbing you a little bit, um, but Parby wants to say, well, good. Mm-hmm. Um, people need to stop burying their head in the sand. Like, oh, like, don't show Iowa. We don't want more people. To... No, show Iowa. There's a problem here. It's okay to acknowledge that problem because how else is it going to get fixed? Mm-hmm. If people aren't rattling the cage and people aren't actually pointing to a specific problem that needs to be fixed, then there are so many other issues going on in the world <laughs> that there's other things people can spend their time, talent, and energy on. Mm-hmm. So, like, if if us going through Iowa for, for two days is a big enough deal for people to be like, oh, that's it, that, it's over now. Like, Iowa, there's not enough land in Iowa. That speaks to a very large problem, doesn't it? It does. I mean, so, we, we so need like, let's more be habitat. real. Yeah, yeah, so let's be real about Iowa, it. Iowa, like, 20 years ago was a million bird harvest a year. Million Bam is the number two pheasant state in the country, far and away number two. And it's fallen because of loss of habitat. And with that loss of habitat has gone access. And that is the point of putting a spotlight on it. So do our, our members, supporters, people in Iowa, like the next time you see us create a call to action that has that is going on in the Hawkeye State, remember this. Yeah. Like like here here's your chance. Whether it's 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 a call for dedicated funding. Which whether, is at the doorstep. Which is at the doorstep. Like, look to your look to your neighbors to the north, and all the good that's gone on in Minnesota thanks to dedicated funding. So, like, recognize that opportunity when it when it knocks. Um, what you're going to see in the future, us rolling out new and exciting programs based around community advocacy and community engagement, and ways to create even more public access on, on private ground. Help us. Mm-hmm. Like, we are trying to like be the answer, and we're also trying to highlight the problem. Um, so, if you have pointed comments and you're annoyed that we went through. Your st- 
steak good. Like I'm, I'm not backing away from that. Well, and for folks that maybe don't understand some of the terms or it's inside baseball, dedicated funding, what Iowa passed, I think it was 2010. So it's like 14 years now almost, uh, was um, dedicated funding for natural resources for habitat through the I will, Iowa's water, land, and legacy, or Iowa's water, land, and legacy amendment, something along those lines. You can look up I will, and it's passed, but there's no funding mechanism. It needs to um, have a funding mechanism to actually put money towards habitat in the state of Iowa. We'll get off the soapbox and move on to the, the questions. But I don't know. Iowa's, you got me all riled up now, Bob. Well, it's... it's, <laughs> it's I'm glad that people are riled up. It, I was the second largest membership state for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. There's an army of volunteers out there. They're, they have a massive habitat tool at the doorstep. Legislators in the state of Iowa need to hear from you that the habitat tool, I will, needs to be put in motion. All right. We'll move to a question from Ethan. In uh, in Nebraska and Logan, this one's coming coming your way because I I believe uh, with your bird dogs you've you've faced this challenge a couple of times. Ethan Nebraska writes, "My dogs don't eat very well when they are traveling or in an unfamiliar place." Got any tips for Ethan? Uh, I've actually never encountered. Oh, you had? I, no, so. I thought Aspen did. I do. Nope. Okay, so I got so, a tip. If you don't, if you do, go for it. All right. I, I don't know how to answer that one. <clears throat> Go, go get yourself a uh, one of those box of uh, chicken broth that you start a soup starter with, and you put that over your dog's food just like you would water. Oh, baby, your dog thinks he's at Old Country Buffet. It absolutely will add um, some hydration into your dog's diet, and, and you know, I'd be shocked if your dog doesn't... Um, Eat the, eat the food once you put a little chicken broth in it. I, I needed that advice earlier this year. That's way cheaper than what I ended up doing. What did you do? <laughs> well, so, um, you know, we, we you and I were, were grouse hunting up, up in northern Minnesota over opener. And for whatever reason, like, on day two of that hunt, uh, Baxter just wasn't touching his food. Hmm. And I've never encountered this with, with him or any of my dogs before. It's just, like, suddenly, like, the switch was off. He just, like, refused to eat. Um, and like, I was just like in my head trying to figure it out. And like recently, like our older dog passed. I was like, I don't know. Like, am I using one of her bowls by accident? And like, he's just like all like weirded out, like trying to like put way too much like human emotion to what was probably just a, a very basic thing for him. But even when he went home, like he wouldn't eat. And I was just like, okay, this is odd. Hmm. Um, so I started with, uh, I bought a can of Purina, like wet dog food. Hmm. And started there, and then I started, like, mixing in hard food. It took me about a week for him to actually eat just, like, normal hard food again. Um, and, I mean, that, that stuff ain't cheap. Um, so I, I love that that broth idea. That would have saved me a, <laughs> a, a, a pretty penny. Um, one other thing I've, I've seen uh, friends do uh, on trips is uh, the old can of sardines. Mm. Um, it's just super fatty, super like nutritious and the dogs just absolutely inhale them. Mm. And so I've, I've just definitely, don't let them roll in it. it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've definitely seen the old, like the old roll top can of sardines, like literally is full of sardines just uh. going out to the dogs, um, is, is another trick. So real quickly, it wasn't a question asked, but I've seen, 
seen people that struggle to get their dogs to drink water out in the field. So start in your backyard with a water bottle and put on the um, nozzle a little bit of creamy peanut butter. And your dog can't resist peanut butter and starts squirting. You do that for like three days in, the row, in a row in the backyard, and you're, you've trained your dog to take water when you're hunting too. So uh, spin off of that. So I, this year I went to these little bottles that have like a silicone cup that flips up, and you mm. just squeeze them, and it fills the cup with water like a little dish Mm -hmm. and i I found that just to be way more efficient like i was wasting a lot less water which meant i didn't have to carry as much um it was a it was kind of a cool little piece of gear that i used this year and when you're done you just you know you unsqueeze the bottle and that draws the water right back in and you flip your little silicone cup back Mm. over and stow it away there you go yep well that also kept trek from getting kind of bloated too yeah just like that aerophobia or whatever that term is um, all right, we got a, a quick one from you, uh, Brad from Bermidji. That's in Minnesota, folks. Um, wants to know, Logan, is there an underappreciated piece of gear you value? And maybe I just jumped ahead on questions, but uh, th- those water bottles were <laughs> were pretty <laughs> valuable. But uh, you know, another one. And this is a pretty boring, probably basic answer but boots and waterproof boots um Mm. those are absolutely critical um you know we're we're spending you know all day in the field we're walking seven to ten miles easy a day multiple days like absolutely boots are are critical don't forget to uh break them in before you go hunting though (laughs) you know from experience (laughs) you you tried You, you definitely tried well we're gonna we're gonna throw this one at you jordan all right Robin in Kansas asked, so put on your videographer's perspective because you, you followed every element of the line during the hunt. Robin in Kansas wants to know, I'm new to pheasant hunting. When hunting in a big group, where is the best place to be in the line for the most action? Uh, find the best dog. <laughs> <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, he has graduated. <laughs> yeah, find the best dog, and you will get into some birds. Uh, that is that is the correct answer. Uh, all right, uh, this one is for well, this is a great one for Aunt, for Andrew Marnie, Marnie in Minnesota. Uh, there's some <clears throat> some rhyming. For people who have been on the rooster road trip since the beginning, and that's Andrew who's been on all 14, uh, how has habitat and access changed over the last 14 years? Um, touched on this a little bit earlier, but again, due to recency, it's got to be just drought hmm. and just uh, contending with emergency haying and grazing um, and just not having knowledge and or faith that habitat is going to be where you assume it is going to be. Um, that's just another added wrinkle of, well, I, I hope it's there when we get there. Um, beyond that, I think when we first started, we were stoked to find any public grass. Hmm. Um, didn't matter what it was. It was just any undisturbed block of grass was like awesome. Um, and I think over the years, we and the public at large have become a bit more discerning. And I don't know if that's just due to just you know, better sharing of information in terms of what to actually look for and what's productive with birds. Um, or if it's kind of like the, the PF biologist army mm. out there and uh, not just accepting the status quo, but trying to create and 
uh, plant and benefit the highest quality, most diverse um, grassland that we, we can um, because we used to spend a lot of time walking canary grass and brome. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly, like, it's just, I didn't really know better. I mean, mm-hmm. back in 2008, 2009, I was a fledgling upland hunter. Just like, mm-hmm. oh, there's open grass. Let's go walk it. Um, versus now, I think people are just being a bit more demanding of us as they should be and state and federal agencies as we should continue to be in terms of just because it exists doesn't mean it's the best it can be for wildlife habitat and and our ability to enjoy it um so whether that's disturbing through fire tilling whatever on a regular basis or planting high quality diverse like actual seed um we can do better and we should do better and that's something that we as an organization are going to continue to focus on because it makes a huge difference yeah um, yeah, so I guess answer. that's probably one of the bigger differences. Um, Logan, Matt in Ohio wants to know your thoughts about hunting fields next to soybeans, picked soybeans, as opposed to corn. Do you ever hunt next to fields, grass fields, other than next to picked corn? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't think you should shy away from it. You know, obviously corn is probably going to be king, but... Um, if the cover's good adjacent to a cut soybean field, 100% won't shy away from hunting that. Um, you know, I think the most important thing is good cover. And then and kind of fun, a little spin off of that, On I, I believe it was our Minnesota hunt when we went to uh, Erica's place and we cleaned those birds and, mm, and grilled them. What was in their yeah, crops? We, so when Nate and I were cleaning, I looked at the crops of, what, what do we have, eight birds that day, eight or nine? nine and yeah. I think all of them but one had soybeans or small little seeds from like that early successional habitat mm-hmm. no corn in any of them but the one hmm. so just a a fun observation that maybe helps answer that yeah. question good response um andrew i know you're passionate about this one jonathan uh-huh. in minnesota wants to know why the hunting community as a whole is resistant to wearing hearing protection uh, I would say it's a lack of understanding of how far technology has come, even in the past half decade. Um, honestly, I can understand how wearing electronic hearing and enhancement and protection can get a little gnarly when you're wearing like a, a beanie or something like that. It naturally like rubs and muffles your ears. Um, and I've heard some people complain about being in the grouse woods just cause like the leaves can be so loud. Branches can branches pull Branches can, can pull. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Um, but honestly there, there's really no excuse anymore. I, I can't even fire a shotgun without wearing that, without cringing and hating it. Mm-hmm. Like it's not fun for me anymore. Cause I, cause I understand, um, the damage that's being done. And it was recently explained to me that it's not just like a over time you'll mm-hmm. notice it. And so like, maybe you should start paying attention to it. It's going to be like, it's there and it's gone. Yeah. It's going to be one so shot. You're not war. Yeah. You're not warming yourself up to, to hearing loss. It's you're just compounding a problem that will eventually rear its ugly head and it's going to catch it by surprise. Um, the, the sound gears that, that we use, whether they're the, the, the platinums or the phantoms or the insta fits, they all work and they all work really well. And it's to the point where you stick them in all day and you just forget about them. And then when you pull the trigger, you, you don't even realize you're pulling the trigger. Um, it kind of has like this, this weird effect where it almost like deadens the recoil and anything mm-hmm. about it. Cause it, it just doesn't catch you off guard. You remain focused on your target. You don't even think about, you know, the big boom that's going off, you know, inches away from your face. 
Um, so I think it actually kind of some of the ancillary benefits is it improves your, your shooting and keeps your head down. It just keeps you more locked in. Um, one thing that you told me like maybe a year ago that I think is really good advice is, um, wear them at the gym, wear them in the truck, wear them before you just put them on to go on a hunt. Like you got to get accustomed to it. Condition yourself, yeah. just like we condition our dogs to do or, all these different things. Or, or you don't you don't wear a brand new pair of boots, Jordan, <laughs> the, like to start walking the field. And, and hearing protection is pretty similar, isn't it? Yeah, and that that's that is a really good point. You know, whether it's mowing the lawn or chopping wood or running the weed whipper or vacuuming and just hanging out around the house, like get used to it. Because I can understand the first time you try and futz with them is at the tailgate and everyone's rearing to go and then you feel yeah. weird and then it's i can understand why you inherently just wouldn't want to deal with it then and then it goes in a pocket and you end up not taking them out or using them at all and before you know it a season's gone by yeah yeah all right um well we do a quick hitter start with logan on this one leslie in tennessee i'm planning to travel west with my family to hunt pheasants for one week next year what week of the season should I take our vacation time? My answer probably isn't the answer most people would give, um, just because I always block my one week out for other things. But I, I think you probably want to go late enough that most most states' seasons are open or have been open, so you're not hitting opening weekends or opening days, but also early enough where you're not contending with a ton of bad weather. So. My answer is going to be, like, early part of November. You're sending people bird hunting when you're deer hunting. Yeah. yeah. And then when I'm <laughs> he's done. He's throwing then... people off the scent, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, as I say, he's wearing, he's wearing an archery hat right now, so we know where his allegiances lie. What, what would you say? Uh, I mean, depending on the state you're going to and their opening day, I would probably choose the Monday, not directly after opening weekend, but the following weekend. Hmm. Um primarily to let some of the chaos subdue a bit and also theoretically give farmers enough time to get crops out. Hmm. Um, I don't want to wait so late that it's super cold and all the quote-unquote easy birds are already gone. Um, so that's kind of a balance, and I think that gives you a good opportunity to still having plenty of birds on the landscape um, while also perhaps allowing you know some more corn and beans to be pulled out and to concentrate birds even further before you know, it's negative 20. Yeah. Both excellent advice. Um, it's hard to pick a bad date. I, I like both of those suggestions. A key point there you said was Monday. And whatever you can do to stack the odds uh, in your favor to hunt midweek when everybody else is back at work, um, whether that's the first Monday, second Monday, third Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, boy, that is a big, big benefit to you. Um, all right, let's see. Matthew in Wisconsin, uh, another quick hitter. What are the pros and cons of hunting in larger groups like rooster road trip? Um, we'll go with Logan. You have a pro and a con? Uh, I guess pro is you feel like you're, you're covering a lot of what you're walking, mm -hmm. um, pretty thoroughly, I, I guess would be a pro. Um, con is it's just, you know, there's a, there's a lot more like that needs to be controlled or, or managed, maintained, you know, and just, 
you need to be cognizant of of the line right mm-hmm. safe a lot of like safety things come into play more so yep um in that setting you know dogs so that that would be not not necessarily calm but something that isn't additional adds another element layer. yep andrew um pros would be it removes pressure and adds to the fun in terms of just banter hmm. um someone's going to have your back in terms of if you miss uh you're gonna probably kick off or kick up most of what's there if you have a Mm -hmm. a big enough group um in terms of cons nobody else there cares how your dog works and like nobody else there is going to pay attention to your dog and you need to stay in your point in the line and nobody wants to hear you yell at your dog So it's just kind of a just giving up control and just realizing that you're, you're here for the group and you're here to have fun and hopefully your dog performs, but it's not going to be perfect hmm. and you're not just going to be able to follow them wherever they want. Um, and so that can be trying at times, but if you just understand that you're you're strategically approaching this differently and just deal with it, then you have a lot of fun. Cool. Um, I'm going to go around the horn and, and see where at an hour. So part of... Uh, thought process here is we can't get to all the questions we do want to thank everybody that followed along and sent in questions um i want to close um with around the horn of each person's top highlight of this year's rooster road trip um before i go there i want to uh, wish one more final thank you to our rooster road trip partners um we got nine of them Browning supplied all the shotguns and uh, the clothing, the hunting apparel for Rooster Road Trip. Federal Ammunition supplied the um, um, all the sh- shotgun shells, ruffling kennels where our dogs slept in the trucks or kept safe. Apple Autos supplied the Rooster Road Trip truck. Sound Gear protected our hearing all along the way. Garmin, we, we used Garmin e-collars and Garmin watches. Throughout the Rooster Road Trip, Yeti Coolers kept our birds on ice. And I think you said this was the birdiest road trip ever. Did you go back and count um, total number of birds compared to others, Andrew? I'm a calm major. I don't count so good. <laughs> um, but, no, like, honestly, like this, this has to be one of the birdiest trips we've ever had overall. Um, Irish Setter Boots, everybody broke theirs in and were, had comfortable feet with the exception of Jordan, <laughs> but he has the defense of just starting the day before. <laughs> That's what happens when you get thrown in the fire. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and then Leupold Optics, uh, who supplied, uh, well, some sunglasses and um, binoculars, which allowed us to uh, evaluate some of the spots we hunted and some of the ones we did not. Um, what was the coolest different species of wildlife we saw? Um, we saw some some mule deer in Nebraska, right? Yeah, I mean, something that didn't make the actual videos, we kind of touched base on it a little bit in the podcast, was, I mean, you called the shot in terms of we were going to run into oh, woodcock. Doodle, yeah. Like, uh, a, a right-to-left crossing shot at four yards on a woodcock doesn't happen every day, so yeah. that was pretty wild. Yeah, yeah that's, that's cool. cool. That's cool. All right. Highlight <laughs> of Rooster Road Trip. We're putting the final bow, the Christmas bow. We're almost, almost to the holidays, Jordan. What was your singular favorite element of this year's rooster road trip i think it was that that last day i think it was that that big flush that we all had on that Mm. last day i mean that day turned out to be a beautiful sunny day um and it was pretty much in the beginning of our of our hunt 
and we flushed like 40 birds mm. and that was crazy <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is you know you you've stayed consistent that's exactly what you said was your highlight mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. the uh on the recent video post yep. uh logan what was your highlight yeah, that, that flush was absolutely in highlight. Um, it was just super cool to see, although there was a ton of hens, which is also cool to see because um, that's, that's our birds for the future. So that, that was a highlight. And then I would say, you know, aside from that, just, you know, spending time in the field, the camaraderie with colleagues, sharing, you know, sharing in the, those moments in the field um, on our public lands is pretty cool. Um, and then for me is, you know, just being able to follow a, a new pup and, mm-hmm. and kind of really start to see him the light bulbs turn on and things start to click for him. That was, that was definitely a highlight along with, uh, getting his first out of state rooster. Um, so big shout out to Erica and, and, um, Josh for, mm. for taking us to their, their kind of spot opening day tradition spot. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good reminder to thank everybody that was along, um, that helped us put this together from Will and Chance to Josh and Erica and, yep. um, Lexi and, John Locks, Ben Wheeler. We had a lot of big helpers along the way. Um, Andrew, what's your uh, top highlight? Uh, it's hard to argue with the massive flush of pheasants and chickens on that last day. Uh, but I'll choose a different moment from the last day. Um, and because people are listening to this podcast, they're going to get a little bit of the behind-the-scenes stuff that just doesn't always come out and shake out in the actual videos. Mm-hmm. Um so during the first walk of the last day, we lost Ben Wheeler's dog, Annie, for a while. Mm. Uh, she is a 11 to 12 year old GSP who's deaf. Um, so there was a point in time where the entire group kind of did the, where's Annie? Um, at that point, Bob was doing a walkabout <laughs> in a different part of the field. And we thought, we wasn't that far and, away. And we, we thought, we thought that he like waved down that he had. Annie. Uh-huh. Okay. So Ben then went and started walking his way to Bob as the rest of us kept going. Then all of a sudden Annie showed up at our feet again, mm. but just as quickly as she showed up again, she slunk away again. So then Lexi and I peeled off to go and try and find Andy. Well, the rest of the group hunted another edge. You and Ben were in the back. So between three different groups on one field, like I was confident we were eventually going to find this dog. It wasn't like a thousand acres, but mm-hmm. there were enough of us around. She's like, where is Annie? Mm-hmm. Well, Lexi and I never found her. And eventually Annie showed up to the group that continued hunting, which was with Logan, Erica, Nate. Um, so no harm, no foul, but it leaves a sinking feeling in your, in your gut. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminds you of the frailty of like, this is an older dog. Mm-hmm. This dog isn't going to be here forever. Um, it just kind of makes you just realize like these moments aren't guaranteed. It's just kind of like one of those, holy cow. Like I I understood Annie was old, but Annie did so well keeping up. You almost forget about it. But having that thought of like an 11 year old dog alone in the field, not being able to hear where we are. She was just out there hunting, having a good time. She Mm -hmm. wasn't worried. We were worried Mm -hmm. for her. Right. So fast forward to the very, towards the very end of the second field, I knocked down a rooster, and lo and behold, it was one that Annie was working. Annie went and made that retrieve, and Annie brought it back and just kind of held on to it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, walking up to that 11-year-old dog that this field prior was just like, oh, my goodness, where is this thing? And she's just standing there, cool, calm, collected, just doing her job. Here's your bird. For me, that was, like, one of those kind of full circle, like, 
wow, this bird hunting thing's pretty special. Mm-hmm. Like it's just there, there's so much that goes into it that is beyond just epic flushes and made shots. There's just so much emotion and connection to people, to dogs, to landscapes. Um, that kind of moment just meant a lot to me personally. Hmm. Um, just because of the feels like it's just, and that's why you live, you live to create memories and to have connections and to get those feelings. Um, don't get me wrong. I love pulling the trigger, but sometimes it can go a little deeper than that. Mm. Um, and it doesn't always happen. Uh, so it's important to recognize those special moments when they are occurring. Um, so you can reflect back and be like, that was pretty cool. That seems like an awfully fitting way to put a close on this rooster road trip uh hope you know as you listen to this that there's at least a few days left in the season depending on where the state what state you live in um go out take your dog take your daughter take your mom take your best friend out um get out there create a rooster road trip of your own even if it's just one day um there's tremendous memories to be had with old dogs and young folks as well uh if you're not a member please check out roosterroadtrip.org you can become a pheasants forever member or a quail forever member or a life member we got a browning blackout knife or yeti go box depending on the level you choose and a 12 gauge browning satori 725 feather that andrew carried around minnesota iowa and nebraska uh, is going to be somebody's early Christmas present that we will give away at some point on, well, the deadline is December 20th. So as you listen to this, get in there, roosterroadtrip.org. Folks, thank you very much for following along. The metrics, the analytics are off the charts. We know you're, you're watching the videos, watching the, um, the, checking out the photo gallery and listening to the podcast. Thank you very much. Now, the next step, is, as Andrew mentioned, is being a voice in your state capitals, being a voice in Washington, to Washington, D.C., your senators, your U.S. representative, and advocating for public access because that's where great memories are made for all of us, especially when you follow the dog. And yes, dang, dang it, I'm going to follow the dog. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Uh, to this final recap edition of Rooster Road Trip.